Hello, and welcome to World History with Professor Roll. Our topic today is ancient Egypt, that great ancient civilization that has so thoroughly captured the modern imagination, and which was one of the world's first major complex societies. Now, I'm your host, Dr. Daryl Roll, former trash man, lumberjack, and IT consultant, but now a professor of history, archaeology, and digital humanities at Calvin University. Now, you may be watching or listening because you're enrolled in one of my courses, because another teacher or professor has assigned or recommended this, or you may have just stumbled upon my YouTube channel or podcast due to a personal interest in history or archaeology. Whatever the reason may be, I'm delighted that you're here, and I hope that you'll find today's episode interesting and worthwhile. So again, our topic today is ancient Egypt. And in the next half hour or so, we're going to trace the rise and development of this ancient society from its own later prehistory down to its absorption into the Roman world. Now, importantly, this is an enormous stretch of time, covering about 9,000 years, and we'll be focusing mostly on the last 3,000 years of this long period. But it is really crucial that we understand just how much time we're talking about here. And the reason why this is so important is because in our modern world, we tend to think about ancient Egypt as a monolithic entity that remained essentially unchanged and that we can easily recognize by certain cultural characteristics, structures, artworks, etc. Perhaps the number one aim of our short time together today is to show how this view of ancient Egypt is seriously problematic. Now, before we dive in, let's talk a little bit about sources that have informed this episode and where you can learn more about ancient Egypt. Now, if you're a student in my History 151 course at Calvin, we're probably using the free open access textbook, World History, Cultures, States, and Societies to 1500 by Eugene Berger and others, which you can download for free from the University of North Georgia Press. Now, this book provides a very brief window on ancient Egypt, covering it alongside ancient Mesopotamia and the wider Near East in Chapter 2, written by Charlotte Miller. Now, For a general survey course like History 151, this is a good basic introduction. For students in more focused courses, like my History 261, Ancient Mediterranean course, or students who simply want to learn more about ancient Egypt in greater detail and depth, I'd strongly recommend Catherine Bard's detailed and accessible Introduction to the Archaeology of Egypt, or the Oxford Very Short Introduction series books by Ian Shaw, Geraldine Pinch, and Christina Riggs. In fact, those Very Short Introduction series is highly recommended for any subject that you're really looking into to get a start in or just, just to learn more about. These are small, usually really easy to understand, and only about $10. Now, we've already learned a bit about prehistory in Mesopotamia in this course, and there's a load of great um, books in this series about those subjects as well. So let's get started. Ancient Egypt is one of the world's first great civilizations, or complex societies. Sitting at the opposite end of the so-called Fertile Crescent 
that we learned about in our earlier Mesopotamia episode. While Mesopotamia is largely located in the area of modern-day Iraq, between and around the great rivers Tigris and Euphrates, Egypt is located in northeast Africa, and ancient Egyptian society grew up around the river Nile. The key points for us to remember as we think about ancient Egyptian society and ancient Egypt is that it was a long-lived society, lasting more than 3,000 years, with an even longer prehistory. Now, this society is now world-famous for its unique monuments, arts, and texts, which span more than 3,000 years. And by around 3000 BC, the distinctive elements by which we can relatively easily recognize ancient Egypt has emerged. So here I'm talking about kingship and state religion, the construction of monumental tombs and temples, monumental decorative art, and Egypt's famous hieroglyphic writing, which would only be deciphered for modern readers in the 1820s. Now in our modern world, ancient Egypt is immensely popular but largely misunderstood. We can often recognize something from or designed to make us think about ancient Egypt by certain iconic imagery, costume, colors, and more. And we also have mixed images that include the pharaohs Ramses, Tutankhamun, and Cleopatra with pyramids, even though pyramid building wasn't really a thing in their periods, especially not as tombs for pharaohs. And there is a big danger that I want us to think about as we explore all world societies of creating caricatured images of people, cultures, and periods of the past into simplified snapshots that attempt to condense hundreds or even thousands of years of complex diversity into one single representation. And this is a real danger in providing a short introduction. How can I realistically condense all of ancient Egypt's history into less than an hour without oversimplifying. Indeed, even if we spend an entire university semester looking at just ancient Egypt, we would still be oversimplifying things. And simplification is an important part of how we learn and make sense of things, but the knowledge that we hold is almost always organized, both in our brains and in our books, in a way that masks underlying complexity. Whether we're talking about grammar, chemical processes, or historical societies and events, the ways we describe these must be recognized as at least partially oversimplifications of a more complex reality. So when we think about ancient Mesopotamia, Egypt, Rome, or even modern America, please always keep in mind that question. To what degree can this snapshot approach be considered accurate but also, really importantly, false. Now, the nature of our evidence for ancient Egypt may be part of the problem. From the perspective of the modern world, or that is the world since around 1500 AD, but probably also for the thousand years before that, ancient Egypt was, at least until the 1820s, what we would call a proto-historic society. Now, this word proto-historic can have a couple of different meanings. Either it describes a society that did not have its own writing, and therefore no history of its own, using the definition of history outlined in my history time in the past episode. But it was written about by other contemporary societies. 
Or that term proto-historic might mean a society that did have its own writing, but we are unable to read what that writing actually says. Now we know some things about ancient Egypt and its history from other societies with writing, including the ancient Babylonians and Assyrians, but also from very frequent episodes within the Bible's Old Testament. Importantly, these all tell us an outsider's perspective rather than Egypt's own view of its past. And even though these accounts aren't Egypt's own documentation of its past, they directly bring Egypt into historical documentation. And if Egypt didn't have its own documentary records, these external documents would make Egypt a proto-historic society. But from around 3000 BC, ancient Egypt did have its own writing. And these writings should make that society what we would call historic, because those writings offer us windows into the ancient Egyptian past. The problem is that for a long time, nobody knew what those ancient Egyptian writings said. So here, due to that second definition of proto-historic, ancient Egyptian society would be considered proto-historic because they had their own writings, but those writings could not yet be deciphered. Now, thankfully, all of that changed in the 1820s when Jean-Francois Champollion successfully deciphered ancient Egyptian, um, the hieroglyphs, using the now famous three-language Rosetta Stone, which presented a royal decree from around 200 BC in Hellenistic Greek, late Egyptian Demotic, and that classic millennia-old hieroglyphic script. Suddenly, the many thousands of surviving hieroglyphic inscriptions and papyrus documents from ancient Egypt could now be translated, and the voices of the ancient Egyptian people themselves could be read. And for our modern world, this decipherment of hieroglyphics moved ancient Egypt from the category of proto-historic to fully-fledged historic. Now, if you're in one of my courses, you are very much likely to see a quiz or exam question asking you to identify a proto-historic society. Now, I'd advise you here to be very careful with how you deal with ancient Egypt in a question like this. While we could have, while we would have classified ancient Egypt as proto-historic prior to Champollion's deciphering work in the 1820s, it is no longer proto-historic. Now, we'll be introduced to some other still proto-historic societies in future episodes, and those would be much better answers to such a quiz or exam question. So, before we could begin the work of translating ancient Egypt's hieroglyphic texts starting in the 1820s, our knowledge of ancient Egypt came in the form of non-Egyptian accounts, including the Hebrew Bible, or the Old Testament, as Christians call it, but also contemporary accounts by Mesopotamian societies like the Babylonians and Assyrians. Our knowledge also came from the archaeological or physical remains of the ancient Egyptian past, which had mostly been interpreted until then from within a biblical framework. But our knowledge also came from an Egyptian source that was quite late in terms of ancient Egyptian chronology. And here I'm talking about the writings of Manetho, a priest, 
serving under the Macedonian pharaoh Ptolemy II in the early 3rd century BC. Written in Hellenistic Greek and surviving only in fragments and quotes by later Greek and Roman authors. Up until the late 1800s, Manetho and the Old Testament had largely served as the foundations for what we thought we knew about ancient Egypt. But as the Bible's historical accuracy began to come under greater scrutiny, generally, and translations of Egyptian hieroglyphs specifically began to pick up steam, wholly new understandings of ancient Egypt began to emerge from the writings that had been left behind by the people and rulers of ancient Egypt itself. And what had once been archeological objects with interesting symbols on them now took on a whole new life. And they could start speaking to us in totally new ways, transforming our understandings of ancient Egypt and its long-term history. Now, with all of this external and now internal historical documentation, as well as the invaluable non-written archaeological record, what do we know about ancient Egypt? Well, to begin with, as a part of Africa, there should be no surprise that Egypt has evidence for human activity as far back as the Paleolithic, some 500,000 or more years ago, with hunter-gatherers leaving behind evidence in the form of stone tools and temporary camps, both in the Nile River Valley and at desert sites. There's currently no fossil evidence of the humans who made the known stone tools of the low, lower Paleolithic period, or more than 200,000 years ago in Egypt. But scholars usually associate these with Homo erectus, while the later stone tools of the upper or later Paleolithic, that is around 20,000 years ago, are definitely associated with our own species, Homo sapiens. As with Mesopotamia, the Paleolithic or the Old Stone Age transitions into the Neolithic or the New Stone Age with the rise of agriculture and the ensuing Neolithic revolution. Um, here in Egypt, that Neolithic revolution would not only see humans starting to purposely grow and keep plants and animals for food, but would also usher in enormous transformations in other human behaviors. While the Neolithic revolution happened around 10,000 BC in Mesopotamia, it appears to start in the area of Egypt considerably later, only around 7,000 BC. But on a world scale, that's still pretty early. And from this time onward, Egypt would see the development of serious and permanent settlements, largely focused on the fertile banks of the River Nile. Just as with Mesopotamia's Tigris and Euphrates, the Nile had relatively regular flooding, and the development of basic agriculture and then irrigation canals provided the basis for vibrant societies to establish themselves. And closely tied to the river, these societies would form with a kingdom um, based in Upper or Southern Egypt and a separate kingdom based in Lower or Northern Egypt. Now the presence of hard to cross river rapids or cataracts as they're known 
provided these two kingdoms with a buffer that supported their relative independence from each other. But around 3100, 3100 BC, they were united through warfare under the sole rule of Narmer. And it is this action, the first to be recorded in Egyptian history, that begins what we typically think of as ancient Egypt. And it is important to note that the Egyptian hieroglyphic writing system was already developed, at least in its early form, by the time of this unification. Now, following Narmer, Egyptian history mostly moves through a series of united kingdoms and disunited intermediate periods. The old kingdom lasted for nearly a thousand years, and it helped to solidify key aspects that would go on to define ancient Egypt for millennia afterwards. The first two dynasties focused on consolidation, that is, maintaining control and order under over the previously separate kingdoms by establishing a unified state religion with the king or pharaoh at its head. The pharaohs exercised and implemented systems of control over production with the corresponding creation of a class-based society in which the pharaohs were seen as gods while nobles served as government officials and priests with skilled writers and producers serving that government and the bulk of society being farmers, servants, and slaves. Now, their religion was complex, with a deity for nearly everything, including the sun, sky, and earth, often mixing human and animal forms. And there was a strong emphasis on the afterlife, and embalming and mummification were developed in order to preserve bodies at least for the pharaohs and people higher up in the social hierarchy, so that they could maintain the link between physical body and spirit. And by the time of the third dynasty, under the emperor Dozier, around 2650 BC, Egypt began its 500-year age of pyramids, in which massive pyramid structures were constructed in order to serve as huge tombs for the pharaoh god kings. Now these pyramids were incredible displays of power, engineering, and application of scientific knowledge, and their size and shape highlight the importance of pharaohs as the people's direct link to the gods. But while popular ideas about ancient Egypt create an unbreakable link between pyramids and pharaohs, the reality is that pyramid building was really only a major trend within ancient Egypt for about 500 years. In fact, most of the pharaohs that most people today would recognize by name were never buried in a pyramid. And there's good reason to suspect that the Old Kingdom pyramid craze was a major contributor to the Old Kingdom's ultimate demise as the human labor devoted to preparing monumental tombs for the pharaohs may have been better put to use in building and maintaining the irrigation canals that had allowed Egypt to rise in the first place. And with environmental evidence for smaller and fewer floods in this period, it is possible that the pharaohs were more concerned with securing posh afterlives for themselves 
than with addressing environmental and production concerns that would have long-term effects on the state's ability to sustain itself. Now, another related issue is that as more and more pyramid complexes were constructed and the pharaohs devoted more and more prime land to religious use in the form of temple and tomb complexes, agricultural production and taxation revenues declined. And within this context, there is likely to have been some corruption in power. And again, these socio-political issues may have been exacerbated, or that is made worse, by environmental stress. Whatever the cause, Manetho, that historian we've learned about, writing nearly 2,000 years later, we must remember, records that at the end of the Old Kingdom, there were 70 kings in 70 days. And then Egypt is once again disunited. And the first intermediate period begins with no central control for about 100 years. And finally, around 2055 BC, Mentuhotep II of the 11th dynasty reunifies all of Egypt under a single ruler. And what modern scholars call the Middle Kingdom starts. And this would be one of the most productive periods in ancient Egyptian history. And it's the period that scholars often call ancient Egypt's classical age, with an incredible outpouring of artwork and literature. This would also be a period of increased trade and warfare, with strong evidence both in Egypt and elsewhere, of heavy trade with the Aegean or Greek world, the wider Near East, and Mesopotamia. Military activity in this period focuses primarily on Africa, moving southward up the River Nile to conquer Nubia, and there's a great spread of Egyptian cultural attributes that we can see in the Aegean's Orientalizing period and elsewhere, but also some Egyptian adoption of cultural elements that are introduced to Egypt through the expansion of Egypt's military and commercial activities. And while this period lasts for about 300 to 400 years, it is the Middle Kingdom's first pharaoh, Mentuhotep II, who makes that first major move in abandoning the later Old Kingdom's 500-year pyramid tradition. While he continues uh, monumental tomb building, this is very different from what had been common in the Age of Pyramids. And it's possible that Mentuhotep's tomb maintained a pyramidal element um, but from this point onward, Old Kingdom-style pyramids would be a thing of the past. Throughout the rest of ancient Egyptian history, pyramids would continue to be built from time to time, but always on a much more modest scale, and usually not as the tomb for the pharaohs themselves. But if history tells us anything, classical ages always come to an end. And this is true of Egypt's Middle Kingdom which finds itself struggling with new foes in both the north and the south. In Nubia, far south on the River Nile, the kingdom of Kerma rises, while in the northern Nile Delta area, a non-Egyptian group called the Hyksos take control. And some, argues, some scholars argue that an Egyptian dynasty continued to rule part of Egypt, from Thebes in this period, but because of its disunified nature, we do refer to this period as the Second Intermediate.
period. <coughs> and since we've already seen that Egypt has an old kingdom and a middle kingdom, we shouldn't be surprised that the next major period in Egyptian history is the New Kingdom, which is established with the military defeat of both the Northern Hyksos and the Southern Kerma kingdoms. While the Middle Kingdom may represent Egypt's classical age, in my view, today's popular images of ancient Egypt are really a blend of the Old Kingdom's pyramids and the New Kingdom's imperialism and pharaonic grave goods. Now, the New Kingdom is when ancient Egypt has its greatest expansion, truly becoming the empire that we can read about in the Old Testament and in many other ancient Middle Eastern documents, vying with Mesopotamia for control over the Eastern Mediterranean world. And it's the period in which the biblical Egyptian captivity and exodus narratives are traditionally placed, meaning that this is when many scholars place the time of Joseph and his coat of many colors and of Moses and the ten plagues. It's also the time of famous pharaohs such as Ramses the Great, Tutankhamun, and King Tut's infamous parents, Akhenaten and Nefertiti, who briefly converted Egyptian religion to monotheism and faced attempts to erase their existence from Egypt's collective memory after their deaths. Now, a little more than 400 years after its establishment, the new kingdom and its great Egyptian empire came to an end. And the third intermediate period once again saw divided rule, with power largely focused in the Nile Delta of Lower Egypt, but with the new kingdom of Kush exercising control in the south from Nubia. Libyans were exercising influence from the west, and towards the end of this period, Mesopotamia's Neo-Assyrian Empire would, for a time, incorporate Egypt into its own territory. From this point onward, ancient Egyptian history would largely remain dominated by foreign control. Following the Third Intermediate Period, the awkwardly named Late Period, is a little over 300 years in which Egypt comes in and out of control by the great Achaemenid Persian Empire, in the period in which, as we'll learn in a future episode, Persia contends with the Greek world for domination of the Eastern Mediterranean. And in the 330s BC, Alexander the Great, who we'll also learn more about in a future episode, goes on a major campaign to conquer what had to, at that point, been the world's great empires, successfully taking over Mesopotamia, Egypt, Persia, and beyond. And when Alexander dies during these highly successful campaigns, his massive empire is divided between his leading generals. And it is one of these, a general named Ptolemy, who is given power over Egypt. And Ptolemy and his Macedonian descendants would do much to transform Egypt, blending Greek and Egyptian elements to project images of being the rightful heirs to not only Alexander, but also that 3,000-year-old Egyptian pharaonic tradition. And perhaps the last great and famous Egyptian ruler 
would be one of Ptolemy's descendants, Cleopatra VII, who would play an important role in the end of the Roman Republic and its transformation into the Roman Empire. And we'll learn more about this in a future episode as well. So that's been a pretty condensed and packed overview of ancient Egypt. Um, I'd just like to highlight some key points before we end. First, ancient Egypt is home to one of the world's first civilizations, or complex state societies. Second, as with Mesopotamia, Egypt's development is deeply tied to agriculture and irrigation. And once again, we can see that a fertile river valley location is absolutely crucial. Third, similar to Mesopotamia, we can see that writing begins in Egypt a little more than 5,000 years ago. That's right around 3000 BC. This time, not with that wedge-shaped cuneiform script from Mesopotamia, but with the pictographic hieroglyphic format. Fourth, in relationship to this script, we learned that new term, proto-historic which can refer to either a society that did not have its own writing, but which we know about because it was at least partially documented um, by a contemporary society that did have writing, or proto-historic might um, refer to a society that did have its own writing, but we simply are unable to read or decipher what that writing actually says. Now, in the case of ancient Egypt, it used to be considered proto-historic, but thanks to the Rosetta Stone and Ch Champollion's work in deciphering it, ancient Egypt is now considered a historical society, starting around 3100 BC with the earliest hieroglyphs. We also learned about Egypt's first unification under Narmer around 3100 BC, and then about the main periods of old, middle, and new kingdoms separated with those intermediate periods, and then a late period, Ptolemaic period, and a Roman period. Now, each of these periods are quite different from each other, and we must be careful to avoid thinking about ancient Egypt as effectively unchanging over its 3,000-plus year history. Pyramids were really only a thing in the second half of the Old Kingdom, and famous pharaohs like Ramesses and King Tut never had a pyramid. And just to illustrate this last point, I want us to think for a minute about Cleopatra VII, ancient Egypt's final pharaoh. She ruled around 30 BC, which is 2,050 years before today. Pyramids stopped being built in any serious way in ancient Egypt around 2150 BC, which is more than 2100 years before the time of Cleopatra. So while we may think about ancient Egypt with images of pyramids and Cleopatra in our mind, she's actually closer in time to the moon landing, the internet, and COVID-19 than she was to Egyptian pharaohs building and getting buried in pyramids. So that's all we have time for today. Thanks so much for watching or listening. 
I hope that you found this useful. If so, please like, subscribe, and or share. And whether you're watching on YouTube or listening to the podcast. If you're on YouTube and have any questions, please feel free to leave those in the comments below or contact me via email or social media. Until next time, take care of yourself. Take care of each other. Thanks. Thanks.